Will you please find in your Bibles this morning the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel? We want to commence to read at verse 7, and we will read down to verse 20. It's Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, and we will commence to read at verse 7. And when you find the place, then we will read together God's precious word. Let us now hear God's word. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And they sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament and my blood, which is shed for you. And may God be pleased to bless his word to all of our hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen. Now for a time this morning, I want to preach on a simple subject. My body, my blood. My body, my blood. Look in chapter 9, verse 51 of his gospel. Tells us that Jesus steadfastly set his faith to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what would happen to him there. Now those events were about to occur. He was about to enter into his final sufferings and then to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And that hour that he'd often spoken about in the Gospels, especially in John's Gospel, there's a reference there to the hour, his hour. I think it is mentioned seven times. He had spoken about that hour frequently. And now that time had arrived in his ministry. Soon his ministry would come to an end. So how did the Lord want his disciples and us 
to remember him? Is it by his many miracles? Is it by his gracious teachings? Is it by his holy and sinless life? Or by his bodily resurrection from the grave? Or his majestic ascension into heaven? I think the answer has got to be no. All of these things are vital and they're important to the Christian church. And every aspect I've mentioned certainly is very encouraging for all of us as the people of God. He wants to be remembered not for his miracles, not for his teachings, not for his resurrection or ascension to glory, but by his atoning death. And we have his own statement on this matter in the verses before us, in verses 19 through 20. He says, let's do in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember his broken body and his shed blood, that is, his atoning sacrifice more than anything else. All of these other things are vitally important. Please do not misunderstand me. But the Lord Jesus Christ wants us especially, more than anything else, to remember his atoning death for us. And for a little time, I want to speak about his death, my body, my blood. We're dwelling upon a tremendous theme. We're dwelling upon a tremendous subject today. And may it warm your heart. And may it also warm my heart as I bring this message to you today. So we're thinking about his death. In the first place, let's think about the must of his death. If you look there at verse 7, notice what it says. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Now the reference here is to the literal Passover that was taking place around this time. But I want you to think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 where he wrote, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So if you think about the text in the light of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ is here. And notice what it says here, when the Passover must be killed. Now the Passover, as most of you note, I'm sure, was to commemorate Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. It was to be a time of remembering and a time of rejoicing. Next Sunday evening, you will remember the Lord's Supper. You will be remembering what he accomplished through his death on the cross. And I trust you will be rejoicing in what that means to you because the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed your soul and saved you by his grace. Now, from the first Passover way back in Exodus chapter 12 to this final Passover that we're dealing with here in this gospel, and to the time of Calvary, about 1,500 years had passed. And during that period of time, millions of lambs had been slaughtered. Millions of lambs had been offered as sacrifices. And when you think of that, think about the rivers of blood that had been poured out on these altars, on these sacrifices, to atone for the sins of the people of God. And at this particular point of time, there could have been as many as a quarter of a million lambs slaughtered at that Passover season. 
And it's estimated that there could have been two and a half, maybe even more people or pilgrims in Jerusalem at this particular time. So you have a city teeming with masses and masses of people. Now, the people who arrested Christ want it to be done secretly. But God overruled in his divine wisdom. And when you think of the time when Christ was crucified, it became a very public affair. God planned it thus. God planned it so that Christ should die when thousands and tens of thousands of people were there to witness his sacrificial death on Calvary's cross. This was the final Passover that God accepted because Christ culminated all of the sacrifices. He abolished all the sacrificial system. And all of those lambs right down through those 1,500 years pointed to Christ, who is the Lamb of God. They were all messages pointing to him. And he came and he fulfilled all those requirements and met all those requirements when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He was the last lamb because he is the Lamb of God. Now, going back to the very first sacrifice ever made in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through to Calvary, God was teaching the ancient people that a substitutionary sacrifice was a must. And here Christ says, the Passover must be killed. When you think about Genesis chapter 4, you think about Abel, and God said to Abel, Abel, if you want to approach me, you must bring a sacrifice. So there in the first pages of the Bible, we have in significant, typical form, the death of Christ, the suffering lamb, the lamb of approach to God. And God was saying to Abel, you must bring a sacrifice. When you move on then to Genesis chapter 8, in the story of Noah, Noah entered the ark. He was saved from wrath. The ark is a type of Christ. There's only one way to be saved from sin. That is to enter the ark of salvation, Christ. The ark had only one door. And Christ says, I am the door. There's only one window in the ark as well. And Christ says, I am the light of the world. So when Noah entered into the ark, he was entering in by faith to what typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. But once he was back on land again, one of the first things he did, yes, he built an ark, but one of the first things he did after the exit from the ark was to build an altar. Oh, yes, we're, we tend to always think about Noah and his ark. Yes, and that's right. But don't forget the altar he built because God was saying, you have been saved from wrath now, but you've got to have an ark. You've got to have a place to meet with, thee, with me. And this is true. For every saved soul gathered here in the house of God, we've been to the cross, we've been redeemed by blood, but we need to have an altar to meet with God, to commune with him, to fellowship with him. And so we could go on. God said, you must have an altar, uh, Noah. You come to Genesis chapter 12. Here's a pilgrim. He's come all the way from Mesopotamia. He's taken a long journey, maybe a thousand miles. He comes into the land of promise and God says to him, Abraham, you've got to build an altar. And that was one of the first things he did when he entered into the promised land. He built an altar to meet with God because God said, you must have an altar. You must bring a sacrifice to find acceptance in my sight. So God has been revealing already in scripture the, the need of a sacrifice, a lamb 
for a sacrifice. But then when you come to Genesis chapter 22 and that wonderful story of the beloved father Abraham and the beloved son, isn't it interesting that Genesis 22 is about a father and a beloved son. It points us to God the father and God the son. And God said unto Abraham, Abraham, I want you to bring, bring a sacrifice. Okay, we know about sacrifices. But God said to Abraham, I want you to offer up your son. So this is something new. The need for a sacrifice has always been there. There's the must of the sacrifice. And God was now saying to Abraham and teaching Ben in that day, the sacrifice must be a human being. Take Isaac. It's got to be a human being. Because sin entered by a human being. Sin must therefore be atoned for by a human being. And Isaac points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. Keep that ever before you. God's beloved son is Christ. So God is saying there's got to be a human sacrifice for sin. And then you continue reading on through the, the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, we discover something more about this human sacrifice. It's got to be virgin born. And then you come to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and we're told exactly where he was to be born, in Bethlehem. And then read the, the Calvary chapter of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, and we were told there by the Spirit of God, through the prophet, the way he would die. Think about the, the cross, the, the terms, the words that are used there for his suffering and his agony and his stripes and so on. And you read who he would die with. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Did this not actually happen on the cross? Yes, it did. And then who he would die for to bring many sons to glory. And so God is giving to us a picture of a sacrifice. He shows us that that sacrifice will be a human being born in Bethlehem. That he would die on a cruel cross and make an atonement for the sins of his people. He was virgin born, different from everybody else. He had to be who he was to do what he did to make an atonement for our sins. And when he came, as he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the lifting up refers to his cross. Lucas told us a little about his birth in Bethlehem. He also mentions his boyhood in Nazareth. Remember the time when he was 12, he came to the temple, and then he went down to Nazareth and dwelt there. And for about 18 years, we hear nothing more about him. And so he mentions his boyhood in Nazareth. And here, in this chapter, he tells us about his betrayal in Gethsemane. You think about his approach to Gethsemane. At that time of the year, these animals, these lambs were slaughtered. There was a channel from the temple down to the Kidron Valley. And so the blood of the animals would have flowed down that channel into the Kidron Valley that Christ crossed that night. And so as Christ crossed the Kidron Valley, that brook, he was treading through bloody water. He was gone on his way to the cross where he would shed his blood to make an atonement for our sins. That's how he approached Gethsemane. Are you with me? Think about the agony. Think about his suffering. Think about his death. 
to atone for your sins and my sins. Oh, what a mystery. What a marvel. What grace this is. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. There's a way back to God through the work of Christ on the cross. And then Luke doesn't go in to deal with the agony of Christ as some of the other gospels do, but he agonized there. And I do believe that the devil tried to kill Christ in Gethsemane. He didn't succeed, of course. And then you think about his arrest. But the sad thing about it, as we read here in verses 3 through 5, and these verses make very, very sad reading, and very, very solemn. At this Passover time, there was a plot to kill the Lord Jesus. And you think about the person that the devil used. He's described here in verse 3 as being of the number of the twelve. He was one of the twelve disciples who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I'm sure you know this, but this was foreshadowed in the Old Testament when a man called Judah, or Judas, one of the twelve brothers of Joseph, one of the brothers of Joseph, one of the twelve, suggests that selling Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Genesis chapter 37, verses 26 and 27. Joseph was betrayed by his brethren. His own brethren turned against him. Christ came, and he was not received by his brethren. And Joseph was betrayed and sold just the way Jesus was betrayed and sold. And then verse 4, we read, And he went his way, that is, Judas went his way. But in verse 15, the way of Christ, by way of contrast, is mentioned. And he said unto them, Wilt thou with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Christ had in this thought in his mind at this time, the way of Jesus was the way of the cross. And the way of Judas was the way of greed. When you think of the contrast, man always falls far short of the glory of God in the person of Christ. In the case of Judas, we have a picture of greed. He was wanting to get something. In the case of Jesus, we have the picture of grace. He was about to give something. He was about to give his life for a sheep. Judas sought the money and Jesus was sold for money. The interesting thing about it is this. Both men died at Passover. One died a suicidal death. The other died a sacrificial death. And this reminds me of the story of King David and his good friend Ahithophel. Ahithophel changed sides, turned away from following David, turned to follow after Absalom. And when he saw that he was rejected and the counsel that he had given to Absalom was rejected, what did he do? What did the beloved's friend do? And David is a type of Christ. And we have this foreshadowing over in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. When Ahithophel realized that his counsel was not acceptable, he went out and he hanged himself. And that's exactly what Judas Iscariot did. Yes, he took the money, he took the silver. It burned a hole in his pocket in a sense. He threw it down in, in the temple there. He says, I can't take this anymore. And he threw it back. 
And then he went out and they hanged himself. This is all foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Don't tell me there's not a plan in this book. Don't tell me this Bible is not inspired. This book is the inspired, infallible word of the living God, best reflected in our authorized King James Version. But there we have a plan, you see. And God was teaching all down through church history there must be a sacrifice. You've got to come to God through Christ. You've got to come to God by the way of the cross. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. That's through the work of Christ. Reject the work of Christ and you'll perish and be damned and lost to eternity. But there's mercy with God because in the person of Christ, he provided the full, perfect sacrifice for sin. There's the must of his death. Let me ask you the question. Are you depending upon the death of Christ for heaven and home? Have you put your confidence in the blood of the Lamb that he shed? Are you rejoicing in the knowledge that your sins have been forgiven you for Christ's sake? You could die this very moment. If you're unconverted, you'll be lost forever. Beyond the pale of forgiveness. Beyond the pale of mercy. Lost for eternity in the darkness. The manner. The must of his death. Secondly, the manner of his death. It says he took bread and he said, this is my body. This is not to be taken literally, of course. You know, we have a door here. I don't know what size it is. Maybe two foot six by eight foot or whatever it is. And Jesus says, I am a door. But it doesn't literally mean I am a door like that there. He's saying, I am the entrance unto my father. Enter in and be saved. And so he's saying, this is my body. This represents my body. This represents my blood. It's not literal. This cup is, is my blood in the New Testament. Verses 19 and 20. Now Christianity is full of symbolism. Everyday items such as bread and wine have extra meaning and significance in certain situations. So on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took a Jewish festival meal and gave it a new significance. He began a tradition that this congregation next Sunday night will carry on in this, in this very place. It continues to this day in the church. He told his closest followers to remember his death by eating bread and drinking wine. Now, you may say, why bread and wine? Have you ever thought why these particular items were used? Well, bread was a common meal in those times. The unleavened bread was the bread that they were using at the time of the Passover that was required. So it was convenient then to take this unleavened bread. Wine was also a common drink at that time because of the critical situation with the water supply. There was a mixing of the water with the wine and so on. Now, did you know that the first time bread and wine are mentioned together in the Bible is in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verses 18 and 19? And we're told there that a man called Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he presented these things unto Abraham. He was the priest of the Most High God, and according to what we read in Genesis 14, he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be the God of the Most High God. 
That's the very first time that we read of bread and wine being brought together. And it was presented unto Abraham by a man whose name means king of righteousness, who was ruler over the city of Salim, Salim, a Greek form of the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And since David's time, uh, Salim had been known as Jerusalem. And Melchizedek set before Abraham the symbols of the body and blood of Christ one day to be offered on Calvary's cross. Thus in type and in shadow and in significant symbol, Abraham anticipated Calvary. We look back uh, with these emblems. When the wine is presented, we think about the shed blood. When the, the, the bread is presented there, we think about the broken body. He looked forward to Calvary. We look back to the cross. And in doing so, we are strengthened and renewed in our strength when we dwell upon the glories of Christ and Him crucified. So isn't it very significant that this man bearing these titles, the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, pointed to Christ? Now, I know there's controversy about who this man was. I'm not going to go into that right now. But certainly, we can see that he's a type of Christ. And you will notice when this happened, Abraham had fought a battle with the enemy to rescue Lot and his people and his goods and so on from the kings who came and fought against Sodom and carried them away. So it was after a battle that the king of Salem came out to meet with Abraham and presented these things unto him. Now, what we're reading about here in this particular chapter of Luke's gospel, a battle still had to be fought by Christ. He was nearing the cross. Every moment that he breathed, he was nearing the cross. But we know that he was the victor. The mighty priest king triumphed over the forces of darkness and Calvary's cross. The king of Sodom came to tempt and to deceive Abraham after the battle. We know that Satan came to Christ in Gethsemane before the final great battle fought on Calvary's cross. Do we see pictures of Christ in the Old Testament? Yes, we do. And you will notice in verse 19 of Genesis 14 that Melchizedek blessed him, that as he blessed Abraham, he was a priest, he had the right to do so. And then we're told in the following verse, then Abram gave him tithes, verse 20. We know that giving is an act of worship. So Abraham has partaken of these emblems, the bread and the wine. He has been blessed by the priest king. And as a result of that, then he gives his tithe. He brings his offering. He worships God. And when we as the people of God, and remember this next Sunday night when you come to the table, when you come to participate of the elements, oh, you will be blessed of God. You'll come and through the work represented in the emblems, you'll worship God acceptably. That's the way our worship is accepted in the sight of God when we approach him upon the ground of redemption. Let's not get caught up with things. Let's not get caught up with traditions. But let's get to the nitty-gritty of getting down again to remember him at his own appointed way through his death on the cross. And when that happens, our hearts will be humbled. We will be broken. 
Maybe a tear will actually escape from the eye and trickle down the face in gratitude to God. When was the last time we, we, we shed a tear in the presence of God? Privately or publicly, thinking about his death for us on the cross. What a saviour. What a work he wrought on our behalf. The agonies he suffered. I do believe that he literally suffered hell on the cross so that the people of God who trust in him will never have to face hell. Because when he cried it is finished, he was saying, all the sufferings of hell for my people, it's ended, it's ended, it's done, it's finished. And that's why I can rejoice today. And I'll never be in hell, not because of anything in me, but because Christ finished the work on the cross. If you're not trusting in that finished work of Christ on the cross, you'll be in hell forever. Forever. But there's mercy with God. Another time, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but another time bread and wine are brought together is in Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, we're told there about the cupbearer and the beggar. Uh, and this is full of symbolism. Both were prisoners in the land of Egypt, along with Joseph. Both of them had dreams in the same night. And uh, they both came to Joseph to have their dreams interpreted. Now, in the cupbearer's dream, he saw three branches of a vine that produced grapes. When squeezed, it turned into wine and it was put into the cup of Pharaoh. And the beggar's dream was slightly different. There were three baskets of bread stacked on his head. And the birds of the air came and plucked away the bread in the baskets before he could deliver it to, to, to Pharaoh. Chapter 40, verse 16. The three vines and the three baskets meant that in three days the, the dreams would come to pass. Pouring the wine into Pharaoh's cup, the cupbearer will be pardoned and restored to favor. But the birds came, you see, and partook and stole away the bread in the baskets of the beggar. And in three days he would be executed by being hung on a tree or impaled upon it. And both these dreams came to pass after three days. And the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood to procure or pardon and restore us to the presence of God, just as in the case of the cupbearer. He was restored unto the presence of the king. His body was nailed to the tree. He was executed. But three days later, hallelujah, he arose. He was restored to life. And instituting the Lord's Supper on that night, before he died, he said, this wine represents my blood and, and this bread represents my body that will be nailed to the tree. So we have the... The, the, the manner of his death and the must of his death and then finally there's the mercy of his death in verse 22 of Luke 22 he said the son of man goeth as it was determined now that particular word in the original gives to us our English word horizon it's actually found eight times in the original and that means to set limits, it means to appoint, it means to mark out, to decree, to ordain. 
And John tells us in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It had been ordained. His death had been marked out in the divine calendar of God. It was appointed by God in reality. Before the world was ever created, before a man ever fell into sin, this was ordained by God that Christ should die an atoning death to atone for the sins of people who were not even yet born. Acts 2.23 says, being delivered by the determinate counsel or purpose or will and foreknowledge of God, they crucified him. Now, how did Christ come to die such a painful, shameful death on the cross? Verse 23 of Acts 2 gives the answer. His death was an act of God. He was foreordained or predestinated to be a substitutionary sacrifice. Yet Christ died by the hands of wicked men, acting according to their own free will. Now, God had willed Christ's death. John 3.16 tells you that, along with many other verses. He also willed and decreed the death of Judas. Ascariot Acts 1.16. But did not absolve Judas from his responsibility and guilt. Because Judas acted as a moral free agent, choosing to do what he did according to the inclination of his own will. Because his will was inclined towards sin and miserableness and wretchedness. It had never been changed by grace. As in the case of Peter, Peter failed the Lord miserably. But he was a genuine believer. He had a new nature within him. And though he fell into sin, he was restored but Judas didn't have that new nature. And so every decision he made was in accordance to the, the corruption of his own sinful will that he had been born with, that, that nature that he had been born with. And so Judas was accountable. God decreed it as a mystery. He ordained it to come to pass. But Judas was accountable for his own actions. And when he stands before God, he will stand there as a condemned sinner because of his actions against the Christ of the cross. Now, from one point of view, the crucifixion was a terrible crime, and so it was. From another, it proved to be a wonderful victory. Because Acts 2, verse 24, yes, not only tells us about his, his death, but this is what God said concerning Christ. Having loosed the pains of death, referring to Christ. And the meaning of, of these words uh, is disputed, but I, I read uh, this week that Psalm 18, verse 5, uh, uses the, the Hebrew word for snares is actually the word rendered here by the word pains. Therefore, it, it could be rendered the snares or traps of death. And the figure that is used here is the escape of an animal out of the snare of the huntsman. And so you have the, the animal caught in the snare, but in some mysterious way, that, that animal is released and escapes out of the snare. Others think that the meaning carries the idea of travail, the birth pangs of a woman ceasing when she experiences deliverance. Speaking of resurrection, 
And some suggest that the tomb that Christ was put in was like a womb out of which Christ was born in resurrected glory. So the point is this. We read about his death according to the predetermined plan of God. God ordained it. God planned it. He went down into the place of death. But God released him from the pains of death. He brought him forth whatever way we want to look at it. And escape out of the snare placed there or the birth pangs of a woman uh, getting deliverance and joy comes then in the morning. So Christ has died. He's gone down into the place of death. But God brought him forth from the, the grave in mercy. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for justification. He ascended to God's right hand. He ever lives to intercede for his people. And he's coming again some of these days. But he did that for his people. He went down into the place of death. But he was raised from the dead. And we trust the living Savior. And that gives us hope for the future. Hallelujah. Christ arose. He's alive forevermore. And those in union with him will be raised to eternal, everlasting glory. The end is not yet, and the best is still to be. What mercy this is. We didn't deserve this. Grace is something we do not deserve, and mercy means not getting what we deserve. That's why I'm talking about the mercy in his death. He became our substitute. You think of Genesis 3. Think of that story, and with this I close. Christ is coming to the sinner. Adam and Eve, they have failed, they have sinned. They hear the voice of the Lord God or the noise of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's Christ coming to the sinner. This is a, a, this is a Christophany. Christ came to walk and eat in that day. He sought Adam. How many times, how many years has he been seeking after you? He spared you. Maybe you've had a crash. Maybe you've had a, a health issue. Maybe you've had a near thing with death. And you were solemnized and sobered at that time and you began to think seriously. But that's in the distant past now. Everything's well now. There's only a step between us and death, you know. And he's been coming, knocking upon your heart's door. Neighbors have died. Relatives have died. Family members have died. And your day's coming. Your day's coming. Let us sing in. Your day's coming. My day's coming. And Christ is knocking upon the heart's door. Then we hear Christ calling the sinner, Adam, where art thou? He's called your name. Where are you? It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to prepare to meet God. It's time the sin question was dealt with. It's time to flee to Christ for mercy and grace, to experience the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God. And then we see Christ covering their sins covering the sinner there we have that little innocent victim was taken out by God the animal that innocent victim had to shed his blood to provide a covering for Adam and Eve that little innocent victim points us to Christ he had to die he had to offer himself as a sacrifice to atone for your soul and your sins to fit you for heaven is it nothing to you that he died? Is it nothing to you that he suffered an atoning death? One day you will stand before him 
And the question will be asked to you, what did you do with my son? But for you, it'll be too late. You're not there to find out if you are going to hell. You'll be there to find out how much hell you're going to receive. Lost. In the darkness, forever. No more sunshine. No more blue skies. No more green fields. But the anguish and suffering and the blackness of darkness forever. But there's mercy with God. Hallelujah. There's a Savior. And may this message be a challenge to us all, whether we're saved or not. We all need to worship God by means of the sacrifice. His name is Jesus. May you trust him. Let's close in prayer. Father, bless thy word. This day to all of our hearts, protect it under the blood, and separate this now with thy blessing. We ask these things in Jesus' name.